You may open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21 for our opening passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 21. We are continuing a study of the Word of God of things yet to come, prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled, promises of the gospel of things God has yet to do and He will do. And they are great promises. We are speaking of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in a physical, visible, literal return. The resurrection of the dead, as was just read to you from 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. The renovation of the heavens and the earth to give us a new universe. The day of judgment, the casting of the devil and his angels into the lake of fire. The overthrow of all of Jesus Christ's enemies. We have many things yet to come, and we believe those things. We are making this study not only to consider those things and to rejoice in them, but to do battle against a heresy called preterism, which teaches that all the prophecies of the Bible have already been fulfilled and were all fulfilled a long time ago, before and by and in 70 A.D., with the destruction of Jerusalem. Preterism means past. It's from the Latin praetor for past. And so preterism is a doctrine of prophetic interpretation that teaches that the prophecies in the Bible are all past. We looked and saw in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, about a man named Hymenaeus, who was the first preterist, who taught that the resurrection was past and overthrew the faith of some. The Apostle Paul said he was in error and he was following vain babblings and profane talking and had turned him over to Satan to teach him not to blaspheme. It's also in that passage where we're told to rightly divide the word of truth that we might be approved of God and not ashamed in our doctrine like preterists are with such a hopeless, ridiculous doctrine that a resurrection of all dead bodies took place in 70 A.D., that the devil was cast in the lake of fire in 70 A.D., that the 1,000-year millennium took place between 30 and 70 A.D., that the Lord Jesus Christ returned according to His promise in 70 A.D., that the new heavens and the new earth were instituted in 70 A.D. That is just hilariously ridiculous and insane. Right. It isn't Christian. You can't be a preterist and be a Christian because to be a preterist, you have to deny essential facts and promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which makes up Christianity, what the gospel declares that he is going to do. We are historicists if we must give ourselves a label, meaning that Bible prophecies have been fulfilled throughout history. The Jesuits and the Roman Catholic Church, the Jesuits being a branch of that church, invented and developed and promoted both futurism and preterism. Futurism, putting all prophecies into the distant future, thus taking the attention and focus off the Church of Rome and its Pope. And preterism that puts all prophecies in the past, fulfilling them in Nero as the Antichrist, takes all the attention off the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope. 
The Catholics invented both schools of prophetic interpretation. It's easy to identify the books that they wrote, the Jesuits that authored them, and how that heresy from around 1600 came into the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that today historicism is held by a very few when a couple hundred, 300, 400, and 500 years ago, it was held by almost every believer. And they gave their lives prior to that for the knowledge that they were dying at the hands of the prophesied little horn of Rome and the man of sin and the beast of Revelation. So far, we have proven preterism to be wrong by showing that the declarations of the gospel prove it wrong. Because the gospel declares a certain kind of return that the Lord Jesus Christ will make. And He hasn't made it yet. It describes a resurrection of all dead bodies, not just the righteous, but the wicked as well. And it has not happened. It describes a new physical, geological, material earth being renovated so that we have a new heavens and a new earth, and it has not happened yet. There will be a great day of judgment where the quick and the dead, both those who are living and those who have already died, will all stand before Jesus Christ and be judged, and it hasn't happened yet. And the devil will be cast in the lake of fire with his angels, which hasn't happened yet, as you should well know, by looking at the world and considering your own life. So we've come to the second way that we want to prove preterism wrong, and that is to look at their timing fallacies. Let me back up for just a moment. I exhort those of you who consider yourself simple-minded that you just grab hold of some of the promises that the gospel makes. And I've shown you where to go. And you, all you need to do is memorize a few scripture references like Acts chapter 1 about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ like 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection of the dead, like 2 Peter chapter 3 about the new heavens and the new earth, and various places like Revelation 20, 11 through 15 about the day of judgment, and just hold on to those declarations of Scripture. If you don't feel competent to be able to defend it better than that, that's all you need, because that is more than sufficient to overthrow preterism, because preterism denies those plain declarations of things yet to come that have not occurred. We've already spent the time to prove that. But now we're looking at preterism's timing fallacies. Preterists live or die by their timing verses. Daniel, Peter, Paul, and John did not limit all their prophecies to the first century. So preterists hunt for so-called timing verses to use as malls to force all Scripture into 70 A.D. fulfillment. They'll talk and argue ad nauseum. That means they'll go on until you're ready to throw up about their timing verses. And what we want to do is show that what they consider their strongest argument is no argument at all and is easily overthrown if they would simply read the Bible instead of going to the Bible with their agenda that prophecies were fulfilled in 70 A.D. Jesus limited some prophecies to the first century, but he didn't limit all the prophecies to the first century. In Matthew chapter 21, we have one of the prophecies that Jesus limited to the first century. It's the parable of the householder. It begins in verse 33, and it runs through the end of the chapter, and it includes that the householder, who is God, 
and the vineyard being the nation of Israel, that he would destroy Israel, in verse 41, those wicked men that crucified his son, and would give the vineyard, that is the kingdom of God, to another nation, that is you and me, the Gentiles. And this transition took place in the first century when the Lord Jesus Christ raised up the Roman armies under Vespasian and then Titus, destroyed the city of Jerusalem and all his adversaries with a vengeful destruction of that city that cost 1.1 million lives and was the greatest tribulation of a group of people in the history of the world. It also tells us in the 45th verse that the chief priests and the Pharisees against whom this parable was directed, understood that it was about them. This was a first century prophecy that the Lord Jesus Christ limited to the first century by describing things in it that we know took place in the first century and by describing it in such a way that it was easy enough for the Pharisees to know he was talking about them because they were the ones that were going to, they were already scheming and planning to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ but he was going to come back and destroy them and their city. This is an example of a prophecy limited to the first century. This parable is easy to understand. We've been over it before, and anyone taking a look at it can see its fulfillment when the Apostle Paul turned his message from the Jews to the Gentiles, as God took his kingdom away from the Jews and gave it to the Gentiles. However, that doesn't mean all prophecies in the Bible are limited to the first century. We believe that we ought to rightly divide the word of truth in order to be approved of God in how we handle His Scriptures and in order not to be ashamed with a ridiculous, insane heresy that, that generally speaking, no Christian has ever believed. Because you can't, there's no one in this congregation with a calculator able to calculate a number of decimal points to show that Christians have ever believed this. Because a few nutcases here and there do not make it part of Christendom, do not make it part of church history. And that's exactly what it is. The Bible has given us a number of same words and similar words and same concepts and similar concepts to force us to rightly divide the word of truth. And I never want you to forget that. When someone shows you But over here for this 70 AD event, it uses the word clouds. And over here, Jesus Christ is going to come back in clouds. See, it's spelled C-L-O-U-D-S in both places. Therefore, it must be the same prophecy. I want to tell you why clouds are in both places. To give the preterist enough rope to tie themselves a Boy Scout knot and jump out of a tall tree with it tied to a sturdy limb. So they can hang themselves. That is why God wrote the Bible this way. It's why He spoke in parables. It's why He spoke in Proverbs. He made His Word difficult enough that if you don't approach it in humility and following its own internal rules of interpretation, you will end up in error. As the preterists have. Because they're that simple. If you read the things they say, and if you hear the arguments they make, you'll be astounded. They actually believe that because the word cloud is in both places, it must be the same event or the same timing. That is hilarious. Right. 
David describes in Psalm 18 the Lord riding upon the clouds. I wonder if the second coming of Jesus Christ didn't occur in 1000 B.C. in David's lifetime. Because David said the Lord came in the clouds to rescue him. It has the word cloud, and yes, we can spell it. But God doesn't care if you can spell it, and if it is the same word, He wants you to rightly divide the word of truth. And there wouldn't be divisions unless there were things that look alike that need to be pulled apart. And so we pull them apart on the authority of God's word of making every prophecy line up and fit the overall scheme of the New Testament. In all cases and at all times, of course, preterists ignore the time warning in Second Peter chapter 3 that says, A thousand years is with the Lord as one day, and one day as a thousand years. When they throw their timing text at you, you just throw Second Peter 3.8 at them, which is God's answer to anyone thinking that a coming after the first century would be a delayed coming. That is where that verse is found. Second Peter 3 8. It is a verse in context answering about the timing of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. God gave you an inspired candy stick to hold on to and put in your pocket and just pull out and lick when they bring up their ridiculous timing text. One day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. God's method of reckoning, and God's accounting system is different than ours. And he uses the words count in verse 9 and account in verse 15. But we'll have more on that in its place. They are partial and superstitious in the Word of God like Sabbatarians. If you've ever met a Sabbatarian, they'll quote 20 to 100 verses using the word Sabbath from the Old Testament or the Gospels of Jesus Christ conveniently ignoring the fact that the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, condemned the Jewish Sabbath and established and commanded the first day of the week as the day of worship for New Testament Christians. But you ought to hear, oh, they can overwhelm you. If you sit there and give them a chance, they'll quote 50 verses from the Old Testament about the importance of the Sabbath. They forget the fact that we are New Testament Gentile followers of Jesus Christ and His apostles. They are quoting verses that make them Old Testament Jewish followers of Moses. They are superstitious about that relic called the Sabbath and by Old Testament references to it. And the preterists are the same way with their timing verses. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and let me give you a couple examples of their timing verses. I've already done this twice before, but let me do it again so that you will be familiar with what they do if you ever meet one and how they establish themselves on everything being fulfilled in 70 A.D. The first way that we proved preterism wrong was to show that the gospel declares things that have not yet occurred, which means they didn't occur in 70 A.D., In fact, they haven't occurred in 2,000 years since 70 A.D. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 37, this is a sample verse that they would throw at you. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. That right there is good enough to them that coming from the pen of Paul to the readers of the epistle to the Hebrews, Jesus was coming in their generation. 
just a little while, and he that shall come will come, and he's not going to tarry. Some of you with good memories know that those words are precious. Yet a little while. How long did God mean by the words yet a little while in Haggai chapter 2? 400 years. Sweet. All you got to do is compare a little scripture, which they haven't done, which makes them not approved of God and ashamed in their ridiculous heresy. Let's come over to the book of Revelation. This is their favorite place to go. Revelation chapter 1. Follow with me quickly. Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Obviously, shortly means in the next five minutes, or five weeks, or five years. And that's what they believe, because John, they suppose... And John, they presume, wrote this in 65 A.D., though the rest of the Christian church has believed it was written in 95 A.D., because there were people living in the second century that knew John had received the apocalyptic vision on the Isle of Patmos in the latter years of the reign of Domitian, and he died in 96 A.D. But it has the word shortly in it. Does that scare you? Things which must shortly come to pass. Look at verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And at hand to them means it's just around the corner, and it's going to happen in your lifetime. You have got to read them to understand how extreme they are with their timing verses. Because obviously they don't have a leg to stand on. Because the events described in the New Testament that they make fulfilled in 70 A.D. never occurred in 70 A.D. And so in order to spiritualize and wash them all away with mystical interpretations, they have to take these timing texts and apply them strictly and literally that they meant imminently, any moment, the Lord was going to come. And the things in the book of Revelation were just moments, days, weeks away from being fulfilled. In fact, by their presuppositions, within five years, everything in the book of Revelation was fulfilled. Chapter 22. There's other passages in between, but let's just jump to the last chapter of the Bible and the last chapter of Revelation. Follow with me. Revelation 22, verse 6. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Verse 7, Behold, I come quickly. Verse 10, And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Verse 12, And behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me. And verse 20, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. If these words have specific time value, and I mean shortly, quickly, and at hand, if these words have specific time value, they need to prove to us exactly how many hours, days, years, decades, or centuries are intended by each one of them. They should be able to tell us since they build their whole house of cards from these words. The fact about the wide latitude and definitions for such terminology is especially true in Bible prophecy. Right. 
as we're about to show. This is especially true about the Lord's second coming because the Bible tells us that that second coming can and will be delayed from ordinary human reasoning out of God's long-suffering to give us a chance to repent of our sins and to prepare ourselves for His coming. As I told you last Lord's Day, if preterists would start at the correct end of the Bible, and that is the left end of the Bible, they could figure this out before they get to the New Testament on how God and His prophets used such timing expressions. And I want to encourage you to always read from left to right instead of from right to left. When I meet someone that wants to start in the book of Revelation to write, I don't have any time for them. That's a foolish and unlearned question for them to start at the right end of a book that they don't understand. If they can't answer every question I can raise from the book of Daniel, they don't deserve to understand the first verse in the book of Revelation. The Lord Jesus Christ, in between those two books, said that we ought to learn the book of Daniel in Matthew 24 and verse 15, because if you would learn Daniel, you'd understand some things that are found in the New Testament. That's a foolish and unlearned question to ask about the 144,000 and the two witnesses when you haven't even learned the Old Testament prophecies of Daniel, Haggai, Malachi, the New Testament prophecies of Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians 2, and so forth. Because Daniel gives you the foundation to go into the book of Revelation and understand much of its symbology. If preterists would compare the Spirit's words, as we're told to do in 1 Corinthians 2.13, they would look up shortly throughout the whole Bible. They would look up at hand. They would look up quickly. They would look up suddenly. They would look up yet a little while and find out that those phrases and words in the Bible don't mean imminence, as I showed you a few last week. If they would leave out their agenda and study the Bible, they would be able to learn some truth. For these prophetic examples from the Old Testament Scriptures, overthrow them. Let's go look at the first one I gave you last Lord's Day. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verses 25 through 27. When thou shalt beget children, and children's children, and ye shall have remained long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves, and make a graven image, or the likeness of anything and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto ye go over Jordan to possess it. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. And the Lord shall scatter you among the nations and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. We have the words, the word in verse 26, soon. And then we have the words, shall not prolong. It's not going to be a long time. Yet this prophecy was not fulfilled until the Assyrians took the ten tribes captive and dispersed them 800 years later. The, the tribe of Judah was not taken captive until the Babylonians did so 1,000 years later. If this passage applies to the dispersion by the Romans in 70 AD, then it is 1,600 years early. And it says soon, 
and not to be prolonged. And so we look at the Bible and we compare their timing words and their timing phrases and find out that they have no specific time value or limiting factor at all. Because it's prophetic writing that uses words symbolically and it's wise writing that encourages everyone and convicts everyone that hears the words that it could fall upon them. And the only way you can do that is to use words that sound like it's imminent and yet it's God's long suffering that holds it off which does not make God misrepresenting truth but it makes God incredibly merciful and kind and patient in not bringing His judgment immediately upon each and every one of you and on each and every one of the Israelites. Let's go to Isaiah 13, which is also one I showed you last Lord's Day. But Isaiah 13 is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament for prophetic understanding of the new. Because it uses symbols and it uses word phrases that we naturally would interpret and apply one way, but the passage is going to tell us to interpret and apply them very differently. I do not have time. I have spent much time on Isaiah 13 over the years. If you were to read the whole thing, it is very simple to understand this whole chapter because the first four words tell you it is the burden of Babylon. This is about the destruction of Babylon. You know the nation and empire that did it, the Medes and the Persians. You know the two men that did it, Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. They're both in the Bible. It comes to the end, down there at verse 17, it tells you that this is the event. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. So we know what it is. It's the Median Empire overthrowing the Babylonian Empire in about 457 B.C. And how do we know 457 B.C.? Because we have the prophecy of Daniel 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9. That's how we know that. That's inspired. We couldn't care less about Ptolemy and his chronology of the Persian kings. He's wrong. We have inspired knowledge from Daniel chapter 9 that tells us when the Medes and the Persians overthrew Babylon. Isaiah 13 verse 6. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. There's those words from Revelation. There's those words from 1 Peter. The day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. And yet we know that Isaiah wrote this prophecy over 200 years before it ever happened. He calls it at hand, and yet it didn't occur for over 200 years. Look at verse 22 of the same chapter, Isaiah 13, verse 22. This is describing Babylon when it is desolate. Remember, the Persians made Babylon a great city, and then Alexander the Great, the Macedonian, or the Greek king, made Babylon a great city as well. Remember that Peter wrote from the city of Babylon where there were a great many Jews, and he mentions so in 1 Peter chapter 5, It wasn't for a long time before Babylon was utterly turned into a wasteland, which it has been, until Saddam Hussein tried to rebuild it, and you know what happened to that building project. The wild beasts of the islands shall cry in their desolate houses. It's going to be utterly forsaken. 
and dragons in their pleasant palaces, for her time is near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. And yet it was many hundreds of years before this passage was fulfilled. Look at Isaiah 21 and verse 9. This is what we get by reading the Bible. This is what we get by preaching the Bible. This is what we get by comparing spiritual things with spiritual things, as 1 Corinthians 2.13 tells us to do. When it says to compare spiritual things with spiritual things in 1 Corinthians 2.13, what are the things that need to be compared? The words which the Holy Ghost useth is what the context of 1 Corinthians 2.13 is in which we're doing. Isaiah 21 and verse 9. And behold, here cometh a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And all the graven images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. The perfect tense, meaning it was an event done in the past that was still true in the present. Babylon is fallen. It had been overthrown before this, and it still wasn't to happen for 200 years. I bless the God of heaven. I love His Word. I love Him showing us these little things that we can describe a past event. And it's still 200 years away. But the Holy Spirit uses words using the perfect tense, which means it is a past event, yet true in the present. Oh, there's so many of these. Look at Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29, you say, there's so many in Isaiah. Yes, because he was a prophet. And he's one of the major prophets of the Bible. So if we're going to look at prophecy, we're going to find Isaiah using such timing texts of the preterists with very wide latitude. And the Lord's already told us to have very wide latitude when he said a thousand years is as one day. Is this difficult? You're saying, well, why are you beating the dead horse? Because I don't trust people. And so I've got to beat the dead horse for just a little while to make sure that at least you've heard it so that my hands are very clean, even under a microscope, that there aren't even spots or specks of blood because you can't remember such simple things. And I hope that you will all remember them and that you will hold them fast and never move from them and continue in them and earnestly contend for them as we have been commanded. Isaiah 29, verse 17. Is it not yet a very little while? And Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest? And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek also shall increase their joy, and so forth and so on. It is describing the days of Messiah the days of the gospel. But let's say it's describing the recovery from Babylon. Let's just let's just be very conservative here with the word of God. I don't believe that it's describing the recovery from Babylon. But if it is, it's still over 200 years away. And it says, yet a very little while. It doesn't just say, yet a little while. It says, yet a very little while. And it's 200 years away. If it's the days of the gospel which I believe that it is, and it's 700 years away, but it's called a very little while. To show mercy to you, one more. No, I'm going to pass right over it. We're going to go on. 
Preterists do not look at the Old Testament. I've got so many of these and they're so much fun. I hope that you've had enough fun that we can go on to some other points on why their timing texts are of no value for the purpose that they use them for. Preterists forget that there's an Old Testament when it comes to prophetic language, and so they miss all those examples that would show them the way they're using those words and phrases in the New Testament is utterly wrong. They also miss prophetic language. Prophetic language in the Bible, and we're told this, uses similitudes. It does not use words expressly to be taken in their literal sense. Hosea 12.10 tells us that exactly. The first verse of Revelation told us that as well, if you read it carefully. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. When somebody signifies something to you, that means that you... Well, let's start with that word signifying and see if we can figure it out. How do they do it when they signify something to you? What are the first four letters of signify? Way to go, Frank. You are a master of the English language this morning. I commend you. Wonderful. S-I-G-N, sign. So Revelation is going to be a book of signs. So when you read shortly and quickly and come to pass and at hand, remember... It's a book of signs. And so we want to be looking at the symbolic language of the prophets and find out that, as the Old Testament illustrated for us, it does not always mean, in fact, it seldom means, imminence. Example. In Revelation 20, it describes a thousand years. Is it a literal thousand years, or is it used like the rest of the Bible uses the word thousand, meaning a very large number? We understand that thousand years to be the time between the first coming of Jesus Christ and His second coming. So do they. Except the distance between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus is only 40 years. So they like... Here are people that want to yap loud and long about timing verses, but when they have a verse that says a thousand years, they will jam that and pound it and beat it and sledgehammer it into a 40-year period of time between 30 and 70 A.D. Revelation 17.12 says that the kings made peace with the beast for one hour. Did you know that if we were to take that literally, there would not have been a transfer or a confederation of authority at all? Revelation 17.12 says, for an hour. So what we need to do is we need to look at prophetic language in the Bible. Preterists miss the eternal perspective. You know, when we're comparing periods of time in this life or periods of time in this world with eternity, they take on a very different value in perspective or proportion to eternity. Look at Isaiah 63, 18. I'm not done with Isaiah yet. Isaiah 63 and verse 18. This is another, this is what we would call our timing verses to show them that their timing verses cannot be relied upon to prove a first century return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a return that would bring about the resurrection of all dead bodies, the day of judgment, and the new heavens and the new earth. We do believe that Jesus Christ came in the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, just as He promised in Matthew 21, which we read a few minutes ago, but that does not mean that everything else He promised had to occur at the same time. Isaiah 63 and verse 18 The people of thy holiness 
have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. Isaiah 63, 18. The prophet here is stating that Israel had only possessed the land. Look at it. The people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while. 1,400 years of possessing the land is described as a little while. If you say, well, it could be the temple. Well, they had had Solomon's temple for 400 years, and yet it's called a little while. Thank you, Lord. So we're looking at perspective for a moment. They miss the eternal perspective. A life of 70 or 80 years is a pretty long time. Ask any teenager. They will tell you that a 70-year-old is ancient. He's lived for centuries, in their opinion. Because it is so long for them to get to their next video game. Because their perspective of time is so twisted and warped. So that a human life looks like this long expanse, but what does the Bible say it is? It is but for a... That's true. A moment. Second Corinthians 4 and 5. It's a moment in comparison to the eternal weight. The what kind of weight? The eternal weight of glory. In comparison to eternity, a 70 or 80 year life is a moment. It's a hand's breadth. It's like a, a weaver's shuttle. It's like a shadow. It's like grass that grows up in the morning, the sun comes out, and it dries up and blows away in the evening. That's how the Bible describes a life. And yet, so we need to remember that perspective of time. And God told us in both Testaments that His perspective is different than ours. Because that expression in 2 Peter 3.8, a thousand years is with the Lord as one day, comes out of Psalm 90. Look at it with me. Psalm 90. We are dealing with timing texts of preterists upon which they build their heresy that because they found the word shortly at hand or quickly connected to some prophecies that every prophecy in the New Testament had to occur in that generation by 70 A.D. And we're showing from the Bible that that is a ridiculous way of abusing words. Psalm 90 and verse 4, For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. A watch in the night was three hours long. There were four of them. Three hours long, a thousand years. In God's, He's eternal. You know, how long has God existed? Let's just... Yeah, how long is that? I'm going to give you mental meltdown along with me. How long has God existed? So a thousand years to Him is a watch in the night, three hours. Or it's like a day in Second Peter chapter 3. So these are different ways in which we can show that their timing texts are quite worthless for the purpose that they want to assign them. They miss the eternal perspective. They miss a prophetic purpose in those words. Because it's to show long-suffering. When the Lord delays His coming, in Second Peter chapter 3, we're told why. It's for the purpose of long-suffering. We'll look at that again in a moment. They miss extended prophecies. What if there's this long event that might cover 1,260 years, and the first part of that is going to start in just a few hundred years? Could we say that things are shortly to come to pass? Because that extended prophecy... 
the events of the front end of it are shortly to come to pass. And the book of Revelation, as understood by Christians for 2,000 years, is describing a large, long-term panorama of the events affecting the saints of the Most High God. And some of those long-term events have... Some of those long-term prophecies have individual events at the front end that did shortly come to pass. Like the millennium is a thousand years long, but when did the millennium start? When John got the apocalyptic vision, it was already started. That was really shortly to come to pass. And so we see extended prophecies If Revelation covers long political movements of the Dark Ages, they did begin rather shortly. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Preterists mock Paul's rebuke of their heresy. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We are answering the preterist adoration of a few timing texts in the New Testament. Another way in which we can answer them is to go to Paul, who condemned them. I want to tell you that a preterist, if you put him in a dark room and give him a Bible, he can find every verse in the New Testament that has the words at hand, blindfolded. True. He will find every occurrence where the words at hand are in the New Testament attached to a prophecy, except one it's this one because this one has the words not in front of the at hand and they just don't like that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is describing the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God that is the 8th verse of the previous chapter I want to start with verse 1 now we beseech you brethren by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him. They would say that this had to have happened in 70 A.D. They would say that Paul wrote this epistle in 53 A.D. They would say that it was only 17 years away. That it is at hand. That it is shortly to come to pass. That He's going to come quickly. Verse 2, That ye be not soon. Don't even get this idea next year. I love the Word of God. Do you, brother? Do you love every every word? That ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Don't be thinking that the day of Christ is at hand, because it's not at hand, is what the second verse is telling us. And then the apostle goes on to explain that there are two major events that have to take place before the Lord Jesus Christ can come, proving by reference to historical events that Jesus Christ can't return yet. There needs to be a falling away, and there needs to be the revealing of the man of sin. He tells the Thessalonians, don't be worried, don't be troubled, don't be upset, don't be fearful about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's not at hand. It can't come yet. There's other things that have to happen first. And even if you get an epistle with our signatures on it, don't believe it. Jesus isn't coming soon. And let me tell you something. They can find at hand everywhere else in the New Testament, but they don't like this at hand. 
where Paul is telling the Thessalonians, don't think that the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is at hand because it's not. They'll tell you that it's still 17 years away, which makes it not at hand. Then what does that do with the other passages where they say it is at hand? They miss the fact that Paul's falling away. This is so precious, brethren. Are you Paul's falling away that he describes here? When he died in 67 A.D. and penned the last verses of his Bible, I mean his, his epistles, 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and 1 Timothy chapter 4, in the final months of his life, the falling away was still future, even though he had already appeared before the man of sin. Their man of sin is Nero. Nero's the man of sin. But Paul had already appeared before Nero when he wrote 2 Timothy 3 and 4. And he said that the falling away and the perilous times of the last days were still future. So the falling away hadn't come yet. And then the man of sin being revealed. But before these things, they change at hand in verse in chapter 2. And verse 2, to had come. I read that to you from a King James, from a New King James Bible. Do you remember? They changed the last two words of the second verse of 2 Thessalonians 2 to had come. So Paul is telling the Thessalonians, don't you be worried to think that Jesus Christ has already come. Which allows them to teach that he was 17 years away. But Paul taught he wasn't 17 years away. He wasn't even close to coming. This passage is very important, and it gives us the spectacles with which to read verses that say, at hand, or have anything to do with the prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ's return. Right. Look at 2 Peter 3.8. I've mentioned it. I want you to see it. 2 Peter chapter 3. Oh, brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. All Christians have believed that for 2,000 years. When he comes back, he's going to raise the dead, all the wicked and all the righteous. Every person that has ever lived and is corrupting in the soil of the earth is going to be raised. What an event that will be. It is not a spiritual event. It is a purely physical event. It is bodies will be put back together from their dissolved elements and stand before Almighty God. He will renovate this entire universe by delivering the creation into the glorious liberty of the children of God and the death and decay that we see all around us in the natural creation of irrational creatures and inanimate matter will be lifted because sin will be officially and finally put out of the way as all the wicked are cast into the lake of fire and the devil and his angels with them and will have a new heaven and a new earth. These wonderful, fantastic, overwhelming events are yet to come. There is no fulfillment recognized in Christian history or pagan history. The Bible does not allow them to have come in the first century. They were distant events. And here is one of the passages that I want you to remember, and I've already told you, just hold on to that eighth verse. The context of Second Peter chapter 3 is the new heavens and the new earth, which Jesus will introduce at His coming. In the fourth verse, we find the context. Where is the promise of His coming? 
if Jesus has promised to come back, and if His apostles have promised that He is going to come back, where is He? Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. There hasn't been any sign of Jesus Christ coming back. So we know the context is the second coming. But we're told in verse 7 that the heavens which are now and the earth which is now, that means post-flood heavens and earth, are kept in store. That means they're reserved in storage. Look at the words. They are kept in store, reserved unto fire. They are reserved in storage, meaning it's going to be a while because God's holding His Word back. And then He explains why He's holding His Word back. He first of all defines it, and then He gives you the reason for it. He defines it by saying, Timing to me is different than timing to you. And we are told in that 8th verse that if you want to understand about the timing of the Lord's second coming, this is a fact and a rule of God that you are not to forget or to be ignorant of. Look at what it says in verse 8. But, having just answered, taken the question of a scoffer, where is the sign of His coming? Where is the promise of His coming? We don't see anything that looks like He's going to come. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Don't you forget this fact. That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. He is not going to come at a time when you expect Him to. He is not going to come in a time frame that you expect. This is an inspired rule for how to read Bible prophecy. And, and prophecies especially that deal with timing, which is why I have it placed right here for the moment, in destroying the timing text of the preterists. You just remember that verse and just throw that right back in their faces because you're throwing inspired rule of God. It's an axiom for understanding timing of prophecies. God's timing is not ours. Verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. So you see, we're still dealing with the same subject, aren't we? What promise? The promise of His coming. The Lord is not slack. It appears that He's slack. It appears that He's not coming. The slackness that is, that is being charged the Lord here is because He is delaying His coming. And the Lord's already defined that He is, has delayed His coming from our perspective, but not from His. Now He's going to explain why He's delayed His coming. And it's a reason that you should rejoice in this morning. Second Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, because His timing doesn't fit their little ridiculous temporal human calendars. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And this is a day that the Lord has given you, and He's given me, and we should repent of every and any known sin in our lives so that we can stand confidently before the Lord Jesus Christ at His coming. And then it goes on to describe the new heavens and the new earth in verses 10 through 14. But look at verse 15. And account. God has His own accounting rules. They're the FASBs of heaven. The Financial Accounting Standards Board, which I believe went out of existence some time ago. It's some new fangled thing that controls all your accounting rules. They used to be FASBs, and they were numbered FASBs. Financial Accounting Standards Board number 15, and I can't remember it, thankfully. Enough time, enough water has passed over that dam. 
But here's the accounting rule. Look at verse 15. An account. We as believers, we as Christians, not as preterists, which are not Christians, but we as Christian believers account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. His long-suffering is His putting off His return from our perspective. It's not put off from His, but it appears that way to us because His timing is different than ours. He defines it in verse 8. A thousand years is like a day to Him. But then He explains it in verses 9 and 15 that it's for the purpose of long-suffering to us. This is the Word of the Lord. So I'm going to follow God's accounting rules. They can have theirs. They can do whatever they want to show that shortly and at hand means 70 A.D. I'm going to define time by the one who gives the prophecies as a thousand years is one day. And when you meet a preterist, just say, you've given me all these verses about shortly, quickly, and at hand. If Jesus came two days later, is that shortly, quickly, and at hand? Well, yes. Yes, two days would qualify as shortly, quickly, and at hand. Then you say, well, he did. So far, you can't prove that he didn't. Because a day with the Lord is a thousand years. And we're 2,000 years late, so we're really only two days late. Right. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord. Wise saints will hang on to Second Peter 3.8. Why does it say, don't be ignorant of this one thing? Is that a warning for us that we ought to take heed to? Or is this just, was Peter thinking that you might close the book and watch television, and so he wanted to put something in there just to get your attention again? Or is this verse important? God's timing is not ours. These scoffers that call themselves preterists, look at Romans chapter 8. I want them to deal with this prophecy. They think they're experts on timing texts. You say you sound angry. You are a perceptive hearer. I hate preterism. I hate most preterists. You say, why would you hate a preterist? Shouldn't we hate their sin and love the sinner? No, because I hate all those with perfect hatred of the enemies of God. And when someone will take the Word of God where the Lord Jesus Christ proved by His resurrection and then declared by Himself and by His apostles that He would return literally, visibly, and physically and that there would be a renovation of the geological material earth and heavens and that there would be a resurrection of all the dead, righteous and wicked and that there would be a day of judgment of all of them and they deny all those things that are part of Christianity. They are the enemies of God. Paul accused Hymenaeus of being guilty of blasphemy. Right. This is not a difference of interpretation about some passage of Scripture. This is overthrowing the Christian faith. That's what Paul also said about it in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Do you understand? I could have lunch with Hal Lindsey. It would be uncomfortable but I could have lunch with Hal Lindsey and talk about the late great planet Earth because he doesn't get rid of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ nor the resurrection of the dead nor the new heavens and the new earth nor the great day of judgment and preterists get rid of all four and a whole lot more. Romans chapter 8, do you know where I'm going here? Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. 
And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. Glorified is used in the past tense. And yet our glorification hasn't occurred. It hadn't occurred then, even to them. Because even to a preterist, glorification didn't occur until 70 A.D. But the Apostle Paul, writing years or decades before 70 A.D., used the past tense for glorified. Now if they think shortly and at hand and quickly means something that's imminent, what do they want to do with glorified in the past tense? That's a... Preterist timing arrogance is crushed by Paul with this verse. He uses the past tense for an event that's 2,000 years away. He used the past tense for an event even to a preterist in their ignorance was still 10, 15, 20 years away. Oh, brethren, are you thankful that God is long-suffering? Amen. Amen. I agree with you. Let's close with these two passages of Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4 describes the falling away. Which apostle was it that told the Thessalonians that before Jesus Christ could return, and which event was not at hand, that there had to be a falling away and the man of sin revealed? Which apostle was that? Paul. Did Paul write 1 Timothy? So Paul, who said there had to be a falling away, in 65 A.D. when he wrote the first epistle, in 67 A.D. when he wrote the second epistle, I use their timing. I don't really care when he wrote them that much. But I know that in Second Timothy, he said he had already appeared before the man of sin. He didn't call him the man of sin. He just said he's already appeared before the lion once in Rome. That was Caesar. Here's what we have. 1 Timothy 4.1, now the Spirit speaketh expressly. You know, sometimes the Spirit speaketh obscurely, but this is expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. The Apostle Paul says that the falling away, where men would, give, would depart from the faith, is that a falling away? Is that an apostasy? Amen. They would depart from the faith, they would give heed to seducing spirits, They would begin holding doctrines of devils. They would start speaking lies and hypocrisy. They would have their conscience seared with a hot iron, was still in the future, after he had appeared before, you know, right around the time he appeared before Nero, and right around the late 60s, before their huge 70 A.D. time frame. What were the doctrines? What were two example doctrines of this great departure from the faith? What were two examples of the falling away that was going to take place? It's found in verse 3. Forbidding to marry. What's that called as a sacrament of a certain church headquartered in Rome? Holy orders orders are part of it. And celibacy. Holy orders is the sacrament and the celibacy vow that's part of it. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. They're rules of fasting. For those of you that grew up in the public schools, you know that on Friday you got fish sticks because they had to honor those following the man of sin in your school district and not serve them meat on Fridays. Having run a restaurant, I know what happened during Lent. How the sales of vegetarian pizzas would explode as people came in with Hindu ashes in the form of a cross on their forehead practicing Lent. 
Not eating meat. These are Roman Catholic doctrines. These doctrines didn't develop for many centuries. The Apostle Paul said they were yet future as he approached death in these two epistles. And I want to remind you, in case you wonder sometimes why, from time to time, I preach against Roman Catholicism, I need to keep reading three more verses. And I hope you'll appreciate your pastor a little bit. Speaking of not eating meat, it says in the last part of verse 3, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. I'm thankful that we can eat all kinds of meat whenever we feel like it. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. And so I remind you where this falling away took place. This is the church of Rome, the mother of harlots, but also the mother of abominations of the earth. Her abominable doctrines. She changes times and laws, as you read in Daniel chapter 7. And they were still future to Paul in the late 60s. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3, 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. The last days and perilous times, though chapter 4 would tell us that at Paul's first answer before Caesar in 4.16, he is still describing this falling away as future. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. For the time will come. For the time will come. See, they don't want these prophecies, which say that it's still future, even in the late 60s, for the falling away to occur, for the man of sin to be revealed, and only then can the Lord Jesus Christ appear. I hope that I've said some things that may lodge in your memory, and that you can know that if you just go to the Old Testament, you can find their taming phrases to not mean imminence, that you can go to Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, and know that, Scoffers had a point, and counting the Lord slack, they had a point because they didn't understand two things the way the Lord defines time and the reason for the, the way the Lord defines time for our sakes. And that you'll remember Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2 that the Thessalonians shouldn't be upset that the second coming of Christ was nearby because it was not at hand. There had to be some major events that took place. And those major events were so extensive that the rest of the Bible tells us about that he still hasn't come in our own day. And so the apostle was right. And those words and phrases that are used about shortly and at hand, sometimes they're describing events that did take place in 70 A.D. Sometimes they're describing the first events of long prophecies. Sometimes it's just to get our attention so that we will purify ourselves with what is coming in the future. And there's only one way to do that, and that's to use imminent language, though the coming is going to be deferred. It's not deferred in the Lord's plan of things, but it's deferred by the way that we look at a calendar. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.